who is No Labels? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute, and sometimes outstanding guest host of the roundup. Lucy, it's great to see you. Welcome back. So good to be with you again. Hi. Also returning to the Roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy's an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief of Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich, and The Age of Conspiracy. Andy, as always, good to see you. Welcome back. Great to be back. And returning to Politicology for his Roundup debut, Jamie Kerchick. And he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, about which he and I recently had a terrific conversation. He's also a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a writer at large for Airmail. His reporting, essays, and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, and Rolling Stone. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. On this week's Roundup, we're going to discuss the no labels insurance policy, their controversial insurance policy effort of preparing to run a third-party ticket in the 2024 presidential election. Then we'll discuss John Stewart's interview with the Deputy Secretary of Defense and Corruption, question mark, at the Pentagon. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss South Carolina Senator Tim Scott's announcement that he is exploring a 2024 presidential run. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, click the link in your show notes for politicology.com slash plus, or navigate to the Politicology Show in the Apple Podcast app and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. Okay, I want to start by talking about uh, no labels and their quote-unquote insurance policy. Uh, This is a story I've been wanting to talk about uh, for a couple of weeks now, Matt Bennett, who was on a couple of weeks ago, brought this as his look-ahead story. Lynn Erickson and I have had talked about this. Lucy and I are probably rivaled for being the most excited to actually spend a really long segment talking about this story. And I've been thinking about this a lot because there's a growing sentiment that our democracy isn't working. That's especially true among millennials and younger generations. There's a study from the University of Cambridge that found about two-thirds of American millennials were satisfied with our democracy in their early 20s, but by their mid-30s, it had fallen to half. For a reference point, 74% of boomers were satisfied with democracy by their mid-30s, and about two-thirds have remained so. And in the U.S., that's translating into a desire for more political parties. In a Pew study from last August, about 40% of Americans expressed a desire for more political parties. And... Uh, This is personal for me because it's a desire I get because I'm in that group. That's why when I left the Republican Party in 2016, I became an independent, not a Democrat, because I didn't feel like I fit within either of the two major parties anymore. And it's also why after uh, leaving the party and stopping work for all of our Republican clients, I ventured into the wilderness of uh, independent and reform politics, uh, trying to build a multi-party democracy. So We're going to get into the no labels plans and its flaws, uh, but right off the bat, I just want to make sure it's clear to everybody that this no labels insurance policy isn't a solution in search of a problem. It's a really bad solution to a very difficult problem. That's how I see it anyway. So there, uh, over the course of 2022, the group no labels built up a $70 million operation to support a third party operation in the 2024 presidential election. They're working to get ballot access in states across the country and calling the plan an insurance policy. They've said that they are preparing for the possibility of nominating a candidate if, one, neither major party nominees embrace or embody the values and commitments expressed in the No Labels mission statement. Uh, Part of this would need to come from a candidate adopting key elements from a not-yet-defined policy agenda No Labels will put out this summer. The majority of people want an alternative to the major party presidential nominees, or they see a viable path 
to an electoral college victory for the ticket. I should say all three of those things must be true. They have not identified who would be acceptable nominees from either party. In their promo ad, no labels showed Donald Trump, AOC, and Bernie Sanders, but didn't include Biden. Uh, former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman has joined in support of the plan. He was asked if Biden would be an acceptable candidate and said the answer was uncertain. There's also now the chance, uh, so a more than 0% chance, that Republicans could nominate someone like Tim Scott, uh, not a MAGA Republican. So we'll get into his announcement in, the, in our plus segment. Um, uh, while it's not at all probable, it is technically possible. They are seeking to get on the ballot in at least 38 states. They've already won access in Colorado, Arizona, Alaska, and Oregon. They're also working on states like Florida, North Carolina, and Nevada. And uh, we probably, Lucy, ought to start with a little bit of information about what goes into getting on a ballot and struggles and challenges and the way that the two parties collaborate to keep competition at bay, um, which is something that No Labels is successfully um, overcoming so far. They say that a plurality of Americans identify as independents, but Third Way's response points to, uh, you know, that when you take partisan leaders into account, that slides down to 9% of voters. So I want to throw it over to you first, Lucy, and explain how you think uh, about the differences between true independents and partisan leaners. Uh, and then you can tee up as many, as many thoughts as you want on, on the no labels, um, the problem here that is presented by, by their strategy. I would start by saying that I am I am not as skeptical as our friends at Third Way about the elusive independent voter. I think that uh, it is true that the idea that every independent voter, you know, looks the same is obviously ridiculous because people are independent for different reasons. And obviously, um, there are people who identify as independents who lean one way or the other. I don't think it's true that that the the number of people who could or could not, uh, you know, break away from either of the two major parties is as small as as some might have you think. I think that there's an an, an aspect of this that relates to people just their relationship to what they consider the art of the possible, right? Like, could there be a different way that that is not uh, electing someone with a D or an R at the end of their name? One of the things that that troubles me a lot about the no labels approach is that no labels has actually been explicit about the fact that they do not want to end the two-party system. Uh, Ryan Clancy, who's their chief strategist, has given several interviews where, and, and I should note that I am an advisor to the forward party, which is uh, often gets lumped in with no labels. I should say that. So I, I have a little bit of a bias here. But, but no labels has said, you know, when talking about other movements, movements like the historical Serve America movement, which you were involved in, Ron, or forward or other efforts, they, they have said, you know, other groups want to directly challenge Democrats and Republicans up and down the ticket. We don't intend to do that. We aren't trying to blow up the two-party system, but we are trying to make it work. So even if you could presume that this was a viable option, it almost seems sort of its very premise seems to reinforce the hamster wheel of the two-party system that we all, I think, mostly agree is pretty problematic. You are right that they have made pretty quick work of going through states um, and starting to get uh, party recognition, getting ballot access. They're doing that by hiring paid signature gatherers. So don't make a mistake. This is not some grassroots movement that has sprung up. And this is not a movement that uh, is looking to play the long game. In contrast, other groups that are in the democracy reform space have been explicit about the fact that they are going to begin working on trying to create new party power, new party influence, but that they are going to explicitly avoid playing in 2024 because they don't want to be perceived as doing something to help elect a second Trump term, doing something to perpetuate the authoritarian leanings of today's Republican Party, of political extremism. And so I think that this effort really muddies the waters because there is just no clear path 
in which you see this coming. This only works if you really believe that no labels is going to go all the way. And then at the end of 2024, what are you left with? In some states, the the way that they're seeking ballot access would not even ensure future ballot access. So I'll pause there. Yes. <laughs> okay, pause there. I want to I want to hear what what Jamie and Andy think about this in general. One of the big questions is and and obviously third way has had a very strong negative reaction to this as has uh uh lots of beltway insiders. I think the question is can we trust if even if you believe this is a wise approach to prepare for running a third party candidate in the eventuality that they have described. The question is can we trust no labels and well, who is no labels and who are they to decide what's acceptable? I mean, all this seems very unaccountable. Um, they say that Trump is unacceptable. Sure. Biden, they're iffy on Bernie Sanders is not, uh, is not acceptable, but who who's deciding this? They won't reveal their donors, which I completely understand because if they did reveal their donors, their donors would, would, would be attacked in the media and, and maybe worse. And they say that they've already gotten, death threats and whatnot. And, and I and I totally believe that. Um, I think in theory, I would support a third party candidacy in 2024. I would like to see a Larry Hogan, Joe Manchin ticket. That'd be, that'd be great if I could be assured that it wouldn't lead to Donald Trump winning. I mean, I kind of think that all, and I'm sorry, Lucy, that you're involved in this space, but I, I do think that all sort of third party uh, efforts in the United States are basically hopeless. And I think that's a structural issue because of the way our system is set up. This is a two-party system. Unless you uh, change that entirely and you'd probably have to do some kind of constitutional, more more than tinkering to fix that, it's going to be a two-party system. Um, some parliamentary systems are effectively two-party systems as well. I mean, the British system, yes, there are three major parties, but it's really a, a two-party system, at least in England. Obviously, you have the nationalist party in Scotland and whatnot. But unless you want to make America a parliamentary system, I don't know how you get out of this two-party system, right? So that would have to happen first. And I think think these efforts, whether it's no labels or the forward party – uh, they, they're, they're, they're really good for political, for political consultants. They make lots of money off these, off these efforts. They're really good if you're a billionaire, uh, like Ross Perot or earlier Mike Bloomberg, and you have the resources to kind of launch these sorts of vanity campaigns. But I think political organizing outside of the two party system is effectively, uh, a hopeless endeavor and it's not going to ever go anywhere. So while I might sympathize and I put myself in the middle politically, I might sympathize with these efforts. I might like to see it work. Um, I think we have to we have to deal with the system that we have, not with the one that we would like to have. To quote, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld. Andy, I'm really curious about your take on this so far, and I just want to add one additional thought to the table um, before you respond, which is one of the I think many problems with the two party system as it stands. Uh, politically now is that the containers of the, the, the party entities now have to hold together uh, increasingly more tenuous um, coalitions of voters. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, what was essentially a real estate play on the Hill by MAGA Republicans to set up their own, quote unquote, establishment, their own institutions, their own uh, places to gather, their own think tanks outside of the Republican National Committee's infrastructure and the traditional right-leaning infrastructure. Because not only are they not officially you know, running the RNC, right? they have a lot of influence, but also they don't want the same things. Policy-wise, they are not aligned. They want very different things for America. So you have that phenomenon happening. And then on the left, you have an even wider divide, I would argue, between the the far-left, hardcore progressives and the mainstream Democratic wing of the party. And that's a coalition that is obviously very difficult, has been very difficult for Democrats to hold together. So I think even more so now than, than has been historically true, at least maybe the last 30 years or so, the party entities themselves are singular, and yet there are fractures within the politics of their constituencies. And so I lay that at your feet, and I'd like to hear what you think about all this. Well, I think Jamie's point about 
the two-party nature of the country is where this conversation always has to start. I, I think it's incumbent on the parties themselves to reverse the trajectory that they've been on for maybe 20 or 30 years where, you know, the path certainly to the presidential nomination, but really to any sort of high elected office position has narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And the range of acceptable views within the party, I feel like, again, has constricted in a way that, um, you know, I think you have the numbers that you mentioned at the beginning, Ron, where people feel increasingly alienated from the two political parties. But I don't necessarily know if they are demanding a third party, they're demanding a parliamentary system. I think they are in some ways chafing against two political parties, the two really only political parties in this country that um, just don't feel like they are a tent big enough for these people. Don't feel like they either are heard in these parties, that there is any kind of place to reasonably interact, debate, feel at home in these parties. I mean, I, you know, I think about, um, family members of mine who are, you know, like Mitt Romney voters were Mitt Romney voters when he, uh, you know, ran in 08, obviously on the ticket in 12 and then continued to vote for Mitt Romney in 2016 and 2020, even just because that's who they identified with. Um, but you know, in the Republican party, it's very easy to feel like you are a pariah if you are a Mitt Romney Republican, despite the fact that he was on the ticket, um, in 2000 and in 2012. So I got to think there are things the parties themselves could do if they wanted to recognizing this, this sentiment that so many people feel. But they don't Um, want to. But but they (laughs) They don't don't want want to. to. But the parties are responding to their bases. I mean, there's a, I mean, we're going, but only their base. Well, we're going through a political realignment and what it means to be a a Republican has changed. The, The Republican party is now more of a working class party. Okay. Which is a pretty dramatic uh, shift in American politics. It used to be the Democrats were the party of the working class. They're not anymore. It is the Republicans. So that's that has shaken up a lot of things. The Democrats are now the party of the upper middle class white collar professional. The, a lot of those former Mitt Romney voters, by the way, have become Democrats. So there's a lot of us who feel that we don't fit into either box, but a lot of Americans do fit into those two boxes. It's just that they're different now. I want to just address two quick things that were said. One is that, I mean, I, I understand the perception that a, you know, the efforts to form a third party, the efforts to, to form a, a new party are futile. I, I understand that. But that also presumes that, that, that there's no secondary impact of new party and third party space building on the two major parties, right? So if we can all agree that, that, you know, the two parties are are catering to extremes because they're catering to the very narrow bands of voters who participate in primaries. Then what can we do and the about money. it? How do you and the money? Yeah. How do you how do you create outward pressure? Well, one of the things that you can do is give people more options. Right. And give them more options in a regular cadence, like in their state legislative races, uh, city council. Right. Like way down ticket races where it's actually also easier to build coalitions of people. If the effect of new party building has the effect of creating incentives among the two parties to become less wacko, and I'm, I want to be clear, I don't think that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are equivalent at all. So, but, but you know, creates incentives for the two major parties to try to cater to the middle then that is a success of new party building efforts, right? Which I would, by the way, say, yes, No Labels has raised $70 million. As you say, we don't know who their donors are. We're not looking at their books because they're a 501c4. But working with a lot of these democracy reform groups, I can tell you it's it's not just like sort of, uh, you know, consultants going crazy. It's so great and lucrative, right? It's not like, the, it's, it's not the it Lincoln Project. It is not lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. It is not. It is like all the all of the political consultants and operatives who are choosing to work with third party efforts, democracy reform space. That is not plush relative to working for party committees or but, no labels. But the, we the say. challenge on the on the no right, the challenge on the no labels piece is that it doesn't actually create any of those pressures to 
fundamentally kind of like bring us through that realignment that Jamie is talking about so that we could come out of it with something better, right? It it actually reinforces this. And it's under the under the cover of a group that has done things in the past, like said that the January 6th commission was a distraction, um, ha, labeled Donald Trump a problem solver in 2016, uh, has not been transparent about how they will uh, choose the nominees, right? And, and, and so far, the people who are the potential president VP pick for no labels are people like Larry Hogan, Mike Pompeo's name has been floated, Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin. To me, none of those names suggest that those are people who are, with the exception of Pompeo, which is just weird, but that the, any of those people are people who would draw votes away from Donald Trump. Those are people who would draw votes away from Joe Biden. And we know that. We can infer that through, you know, rough stats like the fact that only a third of Republican voters think that Joe Biden is the rightfully elected president. Those are not people who are about to break for Liz Cheney. Only half of them thinks January 6th was a problem. Those are not people who are going to break for Larry Hogan. So to me, that really is part of the crux of why this is so worrisome. So who is No Labels constituency? This yeah, is what I've This is a I've really good point, Andy. Yes. No Labels constituency. Corporate donors. <laughs> corporate donors and the two parties, frankly. Um, one of the things, Lucy, you, you, will, you will appreciate this, but um, I have done a complete 180 on my view of no labels since I first heard about them and then really understood them after leaving the party. So have some of their founders. <laughs> well, Hey, good company <laughs> after leaving the party and venturing into this. Okay. The whole system is really fucked up. And I don't think that it's an overstatement to say that in many cases it is in fact rigged, but it's rigged by the two parties in their favor. It's one of the things that the two parties actually agree on. They agree that there should be no more parties. Once you really understand that, and then you look at the way the United States, uh, this is, this is you know, 101, everybody here knows this, but maybe for our listeners, we weren't set up with political parties. They are not written into the Constitution. They did not exist uh, they, at the beginning of this country. We were warned by George Washington in his farewell address to beware the rise of political parties because of all the things we're seeing now. He essentially predicted it. What has happened is a calcification of a political system that was not originally designed to function this way. And so when we talk about making changes, making the system work better, we're, okay, we can talk about starting new parties, but they've made it, they've made it exceedingly difficult to do that um, by, by raising the threshold in every single state in the country that it takes to, uh, to actually form a new party to represent voters, to give voters more options. But there are lots of other things like, uh, like the, the first past the post voting system, which now with our, with our primary system, obviously only incentivizes extremists to get through the primaries. And then your two, um, uh, candidates that you're left with on a general election ballot are as South Park put it one time, a turd and a shit sandwich or something like that. That's how many voters feel that 40% who I mentioned earlier, many of them probably feel exactly like that. By the time you get to a general election, your options are terrible and they don't represent what you would want in a candidate. So when I, this is a long windup, I'm sorry, but when I left Republican politics and started thinking, okay, what can I do to actually start changing the system so that it works better for voters? There are, a, there are a suite of reforms that we identified, like ranked choice voting, for example, which is – we've talked about this on the show a couple of times. We're getting rid of sore loser laws, campaign finance reform. All of there, – there are a host of things that could be done to make the system work better, and new parties can be a part of that conversation. But no labels – once you understand the, 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 the things that are standing in the way, no labels is built – to stand on top of the two parties and keep the current system in place, working the way it is working, because their constituents, Andy, back to your point, are corporate donors and the party leadership, the two, the two parties that like the status quo. So um, I just answered your question. I'm sorry. Were you going to make a point? <laughs> I mean, you've answered it way better than I could have, but I, you know, I've covered no labels or at least seen them, you know, swirling around in, in politics for as long as I've been writing about politics. Um, and I've just never understood who, whose interests they're representing. Why, why are they taking the decisions they're doing? 
who is behind Nancy Jacobson saying that a third party candidate in 2024, unity ticket, whatever, I mean, it's the sort of most anachronistic thing ever, is a good idea. Um, I mean, at least with the forward party, uh, Lucy, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is sort of an outgrowth of Andrew Yang's campaign in 20 and the the UBI stuff. And at least there seem to be real humans. Do you, you want to than... explain the, the evolution? Briefly? Sure. Yeah, sure. So it's a, it, it was a merger of Andrew Yang's, the, the group he formed after he left the Democratic Party in 2021. Um, uh, the uh, group called Renew America, which was a formerly the group that had come out of the Evan McMullen, Mindy Finn, Stand Up Republic kind of 2016 uh, Hail Mary. And then also the Serve America movement, which, uh, you know, Ron had advised at, at various times, which that group is, whether it's your cup of tea or not, does represent uh, a, a group that is pulling from a lot of different constituencies, right? Both Republican, Democrat, Independent, and is explicitly focused on building local party presence and is explicitly focused on um, humans, on building human <laughs> capital, and is explicitly focused on um, providing support for passing the kinds of reforms that would lead to a better system. Reforms like Final Five, reforms like ranked choice voting, uh, all of those kinds of things that I think most people are pretty in favor of. One of the things that has been interesting in that work, and then I'm sure, Ron, you've come across this kind of this kind of stuff, and and but that has been in my mind when thinking about no labels, and this is super wonky, is that there are so many layers, obviously, of of um, you know federal campaign finance laws, state parties, the relationship between a national party and state parties, committees, how to how to structure and source resourcing for a campaign. I mean, I'm always on a soapbox, and I've said it on the roundup before. I feel very strongly that one of the things we often miss is that part of what is so hard for any third party or independent voter or excuse me, independent candidate to run a campaign successfully is that there's, it's very hard to get a data file. How do you get a payment processor to collect, you know, like donations, like all of these things yep. that, you know, part Act of how the two major- help you. <laughs> right, right. Part of how the two major parties reinforce their power is through the monopoly around campaign technology, data files, all of that. One of the things that you learn when you're involved in efforts to build a new party that is going to last is that you also actually cannot just get national party. You can't just say to the Federal Election Commission, like, hey, by the way, we are a national party now. You actually have to um, you have to meet a whole bunch of criteria under the eyes of the FEC to become um, to become certified, basically, through an FEC advisory opinion as a major party and running a presidential candidate and paying paid signature gatherers does not qualify you. The qualifications are, um, you know, you have the party has to have ballot access beyond the presidential races or, you know, to races for the U.S. Congress. OK, so no labels is going to fail that test. They have to engage in activities like voter registration in an ongoing basis rather than with respect for a particular election. No labels is going to fail that. They also have to, you know, they have to publicize issue positions. Maybe no labels will pass that. Who knows? Um, and they have to show, you know, things like a national headquarters, national convention, maybe no labels will pass. But at the time of the 2024 election, no labels is not going to be a national party in the eyes of the Federal Election Commission, which also means that it is going to be, even if we all were like, this is a fabulous idea, it is going to be impossible for no labels to stand up an entity that could actually service the the candidates that they would be supporting in a way that would be viable. They would maybe they could have a pack vehicle, but then they'd run up against like illegal coordination laws. So they'd be very limited. I, I actually have to say, I think part of what's so dangerous about no labels is that if someone on the no labels team was listening to the roundup right now, I think that this would literally be the first time that what I just said is occurring to them. I think they have given this truly no thought. Like, I think they have 
absolutely no clue what to do in that time. And so they're going to be like the dog that caught the car and the losers are going to be the American electorate who like democracy <laughs> because it's, of course, they're going to get some vote share, but it only works if they go all the way and they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to do that. I Yeah. Uh, I think it's very telling that they're choosing to focus laser focus on the presidential race while every other uh, smart person in this space who has started an entity or tried to work on solving this problem have, has recognized that that is the last thing that you should do, the very last thing you should do. I think that's very telling about their strategy. But Jamie, um, I, I, have, I have a question for you and then we'll sort of bring this segment um, to a close and then, and then move on. Um, uh, so if you characterize yourself as being in the middle, right? Um, do you think it is a, you, do you think it's an aspiration worth exploring to have a multi-party democracy if it didn't require tinkering with the constitution? But let's say, for example, that there were a party that represented your views far more fully than either of the two parties do currently. Um, do you think a multi-party democracy could work in America? If we had a Congress that had not two, let's just say three, let's just say we're the three parties, call it a moderate party if you want to. Um, but if it functioned almost like the best parts of a parliamentary system with American constitutional governance, how do you feel about that? Um, I'd have to look at the numbers because it's really a question of what portion of the population is, of the electorate is not being served. And so I'm thinking a maybe fiscally conservative, socially liberal. That's, that's the combination you often hear, right? For, 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 for people who feel that they are not represented by the two parties. What percentage of the country is fiscally conservative, whatever that means, and socially liberal, whatever that means? I think it's probably 20 to 30 percent, maybe more, right, which would make it seem like there would be room. The question also, though, is are these people geographically concentrated in such a way that might make it difficult for them to achieve representation in Congress, right? Are they all in coastal cities? Um, or college towns, right? Is it um, – most of those people I would assume are voting Democrat now I think because they're so repulsed by Trump that they're yeah. holding – and MAGA. I'm raising my hand. MAGA yeah. and you know, that they're holding their nose and they're voting for the Democrats and that's mm -hmm. what I did in the last two elections. But I'm not really happy yeah. with the Democratic yeah. Party and the way that it's going. Um, so yeah, I do – this is why uh, – you know. The way, the way we opened the conversation, I said, you know, intellectually, philosophically, right. I'm very sympathetic to this. I just don't know the, the – But the devil's in the details. The mechanics yeah. of American democracy, election yeah. law, you know, whether or not this is a um, a feasible option is one that I can't really answer. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I wish we had so much more time to talk about this because there's so many – there are so many tentacles to the no labels problem. But did you think we – do you think we touched on enough of them? I, I think so. I'll just I'll just leave you with the bad news <laughs> that if if you if you believe okay. Lee Drutman, who is a political scientist and you know associated yeah. with places like New yeah. America and Five Thirty Eight, um, the the fiscally conservative, socially liberal idea, uh, unfortunately, which I think you know I kind of identify with, I'm sure lots of listeners do, is sort of like the everyone I know feels that way effect. And that actually, yes, yeah. when you start yeah. breaking down the quadrants, like when you hit, when, when surveys have been done of like, if we had six parties, where would everyone be? The people who identify as fiscally conservative, socially liberal, it's actually kind of just like the people, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a small group. And the, the thing is, it's, well, it, yeah. and, and, and this is the problem is that most of those people are in the media. And they're in the elite sectors, and right? And so we're all talking to ourselves. <laughs> right. Think in consultants, right? That's that's who we're talking about. And it's actually probably like 2% of the population, okay? Mm -hmm. I said earlier, maybe 20 to 30. No, it's probably two. <laughs> but it's everyone I know feels that way. It's like Pauline Kael after, after, Nixon, after Nixon won in 1972. She said, I don't know how Nixon won. No one I knew voted for him, right? And so that's, that, and so that's why I think a lot of this conversation is frankly futile. Um, because it really is a sort of intra-elite – it's an intra-elite navel-gazing preoccupation that there's going to be some third party that is socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And there actually is not an appetite for that in the United States. Lucy, we should come back and, and explain a little bit more about 
well, there's so many things to talk about. Bookmark, listeners, we're coming back to this. There's more to the story. For now, let's talk about Jon Stewart and the Pentagon. Last week, Jon Stewart made waves at the War Horse Symposium at the University of Chicago with his interview of Kathleen Hicks, a top Pentagon official. The discussion covered a wide range of topics related to defense and national security, but it was Stewart's pointed questions about corruption and waste within the Defense Department that stole the show. Last fall, the DOD failed its fifth ever audit for the fifth time. It wasn't able to account for more than half of its assets. A team of 1,600 auditors looked at DOD's $3.5 trillion in assets and $3.7 trillion in liabilities and couldn't account for about 50% of its assets. Since the early 90s, uh, federal law has required audits of all government agencies, but since fiscal year 2013, every agency besides DOD has been able to pass their audits. Stewart brought up the failed audit and the likelihood that not being able to account for your money leads to waste, fraud, and abuse. Let's take a listen to this clip. It's about four minutes long. Are these? Do you feel like these are unfair questions of, of somebody within a department of that size and scope? I think you have an, a particular thing you really want to talk about and you're asking me other questions, but I don't think it's unfair to ask me about the audit. It's absolutely the case that the United right. States military should be able to pass an audit, and we've got to be on that pathway to get there. But don't you think that that does speak to the larger point that we're trying to get at, which is good journalism uncovers corruption? And Okay, that, I mean, good journalism does uncover corruption, yeah. but... I'm not sure these two things are linked. An audit oh, is not... Oh, but they are. Okay, so you need to explain to me, do you understand what an audit does and the degree to which it is linked to the question that you're asking? I believe so. Okay, go ahead. Give me your explanation. No, I don't mind learning. So <laughs> what I would suggest is that uh, the audit that they have in, in the military doesn't really look at... Um, whether or not there's efficacy, it's just whether they got delivered the thing that they ordered. And that is, that is any audit. That is any audit. That is true. But generally, those audits aren't $400 billion for Raytheon and $1.7 trillion for a plane that doesn't seem to be doing. Like, there is a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse within a system. Audits and waste, is. fraud, and abuse are not the same thing. So let's uh, decompose then these please educate me on, on sure. what Sure. So the, an audit is exactly what you just described, yes. which is, do I know what was delivered to which place? Right. The ability to pass an audit or in a, the fact that the DOD has not passed an audit is not suggestive of waste, fraud, and abuse. That is completely false right there. So... So what is now it's a question of, of it's suggestive that we can't we don't have an accurate inventory that we can pull up of what we have where. That is not the same as saying we can't do that because waste, fraud, and abuse has occurred. So, in my world, yeah, that's waste. How is that waste? If I give you a billion dollars and you can't tell me what happened to it. That, to me, is wasteful. That, that means you well, are not responsible. <laughs> but if you can't tell me where it went, then what am I supposed to think? And when there has been reporting, I mean, this is not, look, I'm not, I'm not saying this is on you and that you caused this. But <laughs> I think it's, it's a tough argument to I'm make sure that <laughs> an, an $850 billion budget to an organization that can't pass an audit and tell you where that money went like, I think most people would consider that somewhere in the realm of waste, fraud, or abuse because they would wonder why that money isn't well accounted for. And especially when they see food insecurity on military bases and they see... Do you want to talk about that? Because that's a good... St we should be talking... I mean, well, I'm trying all, to understand is, where, where, where you're trying to go other than the dollars, which really well, bother you. <laughs> I think it doesn't really bother me. I think it's all connected. Okay. I think tell when me, I Tell look, me that story. Tell, tell me how you're thinking well, about that. Well, when I see uh, a State Department get uh, a certain amount of money and a military budget be 10 times that, and I see a struggle within government to get people, like, more basic services, and then that... Uh, department that got that. I mean, we got out of 20 years of war and the Pentagon got a $50 billion raise. Like, that's shocking to me. Now, I may not understand exactly the ins and outs and, yeah. and the incredible uh, magic of an audit, but I'm a human being who lives on the earth and can't figure out how $850 billion 
to a department means that the rank and file still have to be on food stamps. Like, to me, that's fucking corruption. I'm sorry. And if, like, if that blows your mind, and if you think, like, that's, like, a crazy agenda for me to have, I really think that that's institutional thinking and that it's not looking at the day-to-day reality of the people that you call the greatest fighting force in the world. So, I just again, I get back to this idea of, like, I'm not looking to pick a fight with you, but I am surprised at that the reaction to these questions are, you don't know what an audit is, bucko. Like, that's just weird to me. So I want to get to this conversation about, you know, pay-for-service members and military members being on food stamps, et cetera. But let's just start with the audit, especially because I don't think we're having a serious conversation about what the federal government should be spending money on. Uh, And that's across the board, not just at the Pentagon. It's something that we've touched on on the show uh, numerous times recently. But right now, there's this conversation that Republicans are having about cutting federal spending, but the DOD's budget makes up more than 10% of government spending. And we don't know what they have on hand and what they're spending all their money on. So, Andy, I am really interested in how you're thinking about this, um, given your uh, investigative chops. This argument that you can't say there's waste, fraud, and abuse because we're not tracking whether there is waste, fraud, or abuse. How are you interpreting this story? I mean, I think the story of defense spending and the inability to account for where this money goes by some measurements, more than half of the assets is the great underappreciated undercovered story of Washington, DC of, of American government. You know, we'd like to say that American politics has a sort of pendulum effect, reaction, counter reaction, progress, backslide from whatever angle you're coming at a story or you're coming at this, the story of this country. The one thing that never seems to change is defense spending. It's a bipartisan issue, one of the few remaining bipartisan uh, subjects on which uh, almost all members of Congress seem to agree. And the defense budget, with few exceptions, seems to go up, 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 and up, whether we are engaged in actual wars overseas, whether we're not, whether the threats perceived are greater or fewer than they were the year before or the decade before. The defense budget is just continues to swallow so much of what the American government does with the taxpayers' money. And it has been designed to be as inefficient as humanly possible because Congress has set it up in such a way that the manufacture of planes, boats, parts, you name it, toilets, weapons, and so on, is spread across the country to build political support for keeping these projects going. If you put one piece of a plane in 50 different congressional districts, you have guaranteed those 50 congressional districts, their representatives are going to continue to support your project, even if it's billions of dollars over budget, years behind schedule. And in some cases, like this you know, most recent, um, I think it's the F-35, not even clear that it's a particularly good fighter plane. Doesn't seem to work the way it was advertised. May never get out into the field, get out into a war zone or combat zone and and perform as advertised. So, I mean, it's just one of these scandals that is so uh, ever present that that never goes away, that actually it just sort of faded into the background. No one really even thinks about it, talks about it. I, this is going to be an unpopular opinion with this group, but I'm thankful for Jon Stewart here for creating a sort of viral moment. I'm not quite sure why Kath Hicks, whatever, I've gone on stage with him. That's a but I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that she did. I'm glad that she did because I'm hearing people are both here in, in Washington, but just random friends of mine post this thing on Facebook or call me, text me, ask me about it. You know, when the when the group thread with my uh, college friends lights up with a discussion of defense spending, you know, something has broken through in a way it usually doesn't. It seems like a weird time to be upset about the size of the defense budget. We are (laughs) involved in a massive land war in Europe, the first land war on the European continent since World War II. We are materially involved in that. Obviously, we're not a declared party, but we are supplying Ukraine, as we should be, with our European allies. 
Uh, it's a very important battle going on right now. I think, you know, the, the future of the free world is largely hanging on what goes on in that country. We have a rising China that is trying to contest our position as global hegemon. And they're, you know, they're, they're saber rattling with, with Taiwan. Uh, we have the Iranians on the march towards a nuclear weapon. So, you know, to be haggling over the defense budget, I find um, not really useful. And just to go to John Stewart, I mean, look, this is just this guy perfected the whole sort of Daily Show style of finding some like hapless, some hapless, you know, person who's not ready for prime time, just a sitting duck, easy target, and coming at them. And and it's it's such an unfair fight. I mean, I no one had ever heard of this woman who was on stage last week. Again, I hadn't heard of her. I, I mean, she's some middling bureaucratic official at the Defense Department. Whoever works in their press office should be fired for allowing her to go on stage with John Stewart. Do you not? Does this man not have a track record? And by the way, all his like epigons and in, in the Daily Show, this is what they do. They they go to Kansas. They find some rube. You know, they sit them down and they make them look like a fool. So, you know, why she was agreeing to go on stage with him. He comes off looking like he's this serious policy intellectual. I mean, I don't like Jon Stewart. I really never liked him, but I did like him more when he was trying to be when, when he was actually acting like a comedian. And now he's taken on this with this new show he has. He's taken on this sort of like, you know, Walter Cronkite demeanor, which I find <laughs> Just grating, just grating and <laughs> smug. Um, so I found this whole, I found the whole thing just, you know, not. To be clear, to be clear, Cap Hicks is the deputy. She's the deputy secretary of defense. She, she's she's the, the number two. So I, I, I take the point about the Rube thing. That I agree Which, with. Which, by the way, this is a Fox one, News though. move, hardcore. Also, it's a TV. Like, you know, it's, it's, a, a TV, it's a TV. It's a TV move. It's a TV move, yeah. and that's that's what he is. He's not some. He's not you know a, a reporter at ProPublica. You know, looking through the numbers and finding uh, some massive scandal. He's using other people's reporting in these kind of gotcha moments. It's it, it, Go ahead, it gets it gets to there. This there are a lot of threads to pull on this around celebrity and politics and how people like Jon Stewart should or shouldn't interact with policy, how not whether they should, how we perceive them, how we should treat them. He he also clearly in the interaction with Deputy Secretary Hicks does a thing where he acts in a way that is not in good faith in the interaction with her, in my opinion, where he, first of all, not to sound like a prude, but I don't think it's really appropriate in a fireside chat with the deputy deputy secretary of defense to be dropping hard f bombs. I look, call me old fashioned. I think that's a little I- improper, right? So he's save, the, save those for political. He's interacting. Yes, exactly. He's interacting with her in a way that she, in her position and as a person who's acting with gravitas, cannot act back to him, right? But there is a moment in that interaction where, so it's it's unfair. The context is unfair. And there's a moment in that interaction where she says to him, it seems like you are trying to talk, you're asking about one thing, but you really want to talk about something else. And that is true. I, look, we were talking earlier about sort of people's political identities. I come from the sort of like Cato Institute um, tradition, right? I've been a person who came up on the right and has been saying we spend too much on defense forever. So this is not, I'm not some defender of of oversized giant defense budgets. Even a few weeks ago, we talked on the show when Frank was on, we were talking about the idea of how everyone gets their little saucer of milk because every congressional district has some, uh, you know, little thing that is like part of the defense, has some contractor who's a defense contractor, right? There are lots of ways that the system perpetuates a defense budget that is large, probably too large. But something that gets lost, I think, in that viral clip that's making the rounds is that what Deputy Deputy Secretary Hicks then says is, it seems like you actually want to talk about something else. And she's right. John Stewart is not, I don't think, actually concerned about the size of the defense budget. John Stewart is an advocate for veterans. And that's also fine. But what he actually wants to talk about is uh, the culture of how we treat veterans in America. He wants to talk about veterans being on food stamps. He wants to talk about veterans' access to care. And that is a fine discussion to be had. 
you know, I think there actually could have been a very interesting conversation around the culture of veterans. Like maybe part of what we need to come to terms with is that our culture of veterans, maybe we don't need so many people in the army. Maybe like that's outdated. Maybe in modern warfare, we shouldn't have military service be like this thing that you do if you're not quite sure what to do when you're graduating from high school, right? Those are interesting conversations we had. John Stewart is acting in bad faith because he actually isn't very concerned about the size of the defense budget. He just doesn't like that there are some things that are being spent on things and we're not sure because it's failed the audit and that's a valid conversation, but that other things that he would like funds to be <laughs> spent on are not happening. Oh. And let's just be clear. He, so he, he's using the inability to pass an audit as a segue to commentary about how the government values or doesn't value service members. Right. That's That was the rhetorical move. But there were a couple of things. So there's a couple of things that stand out to me about this conversation. First, I think, Jamie, what you said about the the need for large spending on defense right now, I think is absolutely right. I don't, I, so personally, I'm not concerned about the size of the DOD or the size of Pentagon spending right now, given all the reasons that you laid out, especially uh, with, with China waiting in the wings. And we haven't talked enough about China. Um, uh, so it isn't, and I, and I agree with you, Lucy, I don't think it's necessarily, um, that wasn't really his problem. It wasn't really the size of the budget, but what he called out, and I think corruption is too strong a word here, given the question mark that we don't know, but what he's, what I think is right for people to pay attention to is not necessarily the size of the budget, but the fact that there's a giant unknown about what the Pentagon has at its disposal. And I think that is shocking to people. That's why the clip went viral. And Andy, just like you, I had friends who sent me the clip who uh, aren't in politics at all um, and who you know just received it virally. I'm like, oh my God, is Jon Stewart running for president? And also, what the fuck? They, we don't know what we have? Like th- that, that to them was very, very shocking. Um, the, 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 t- the, the problem that he's identifying soldiers, uh, on food stamps, according to the Department of Agriculture in 2019, 22,000 active duty service members, 213,000 members of the National Guard or Reservists, and 1.1 million veterans were receiving SNAP benefits. Um, and last fall, an analyst from the American Enterprise Institute reported that this is based on the Pentagon's own data about a quarter of enlisted personnel are food insecure. Now we can talk about what food insecurity actually means, what, what, how that's being applied, but, but I think that piece of information also worthy of conversation and also kind of shocking if you aren't familiar with the state of the U.S. military. Also fair? Go ahead. Is it, is it, I mean, is it shocking? Is it a, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I think there are some I mean, underlying. 22,000 currents. It's not that many. I, yeah. I think there are some under. There's like a million, there's like a million active duty soldiers. Okay. So 22,000, maybe even more than a million active duty. 20, 24% I, I, of to... active duty food, the food security, food insecurity numbers, 24% out of active duty service members. How do you define in, food in insecurity? Is that like the campus right. rape epidemic or, you know, I mean, there's all these terms that we have right. that, that I think are completely language can be misleading that here. are totally, yeah. totally motivated reasoning here. And I just don't, I'm very skeptical when I hear these figures. Totally. You could also take this a lot of different ways. You could, you could take the fact that there are lobbies in the U S that are, you know, like, Ag, ag interests, um, other types of um, large distributors of uh, food, food, the food industry that actually also lobby to expand SNAP benefits, right? Like it's not so easy to just be like, well, and and also, is it a work? I mean, is it is it higher than the general population? Yes. Is it? Are there other reasons to explain why veterans might be on SNAP? Are there also reasons like? Might it be okay? I, I I just think I don't want to like step in it here, but I'm not sure that it is just so shocking. And I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure about this one. It comes across as shocking if the if you're not following it, if you don't know a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. I guess my problem too is uh, to- totally good, fair, fair and valid point about defining food insecurity. I mean, I think it's some combination of. Poverty levels, SNAP, you know, free and reduced price lunches at schools wrapped together. 
all of that. But we're still talking about a Pentagon here that can't account for 50 to 60% of the money spent on its books. And that's a shitload of money. I can say that on yeah. public college, right? That's a shitload yes. of money. And I, I don't <laughs> think it's so much to ask if the appropriations to the Pentagon continue to rise without any sort of uh, adjustment or a real challenge to that. They can't account for where half their money is. And there are problems among the people who make up the workforce of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the Department of Defense, especially junior service members. I mean, even if it's 10% are truly food insecure or miss a meal once a day or, or whatever the measurement, a real measurement um, that isn't inflated by act, that still feels like something that maybe if they were, had better books, they could address that problem and still keep the country safe and address all these problems. I don't know, just not being able to pass an audit. The Pentagon is the only agency that can get away with this for as long as it has without consequence. And that, that to me is a scandal. Yeah. So to me, to me, the thing that stood out, you know, when she said, um, (laughs) we can't pull up an inventory of what we have, essentially, that was, that was the moment I think that was rather stunning for me, setting aside how much you think we should be spending on defense, setting aside the food insecurity issue. um, Simply the fact that we can't say what we have, we can't pull up an inventory of what we have and where it is, I think, uh, doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that the money is being spent well. Now, I think he went too far by calling it corruption. I don't think you have the information to to go that far. Uh, I think that was out of bounds. Um, but uh, but the sentiments behind it, um, the the suspicion, the shock, the like, wow, you this is like the greatest military on the earth, and we don't know what we have, or you can't tell us what we have. That doesn't mean that there's abuse, but that's not a good fact. Uh, and it certainly isn't, um, it, it doesn't make Americans feel comfortable. Welcome, so that to, was welcome to Washington. Yeah. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that, that was the part of this that made me feel, um, uncomfortable. And now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, um, let's talk about what you're watching. Jamie, what do you have for us? So, uh, a gay rights, or I should say, excuse me, an LGBTQIA plus rights organization called Equality Florida has issued a travel advisory telling people not to visit that state, that it is apparently dangerous for them to do so due to the uh, reign of uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor. And I just saw that an immigrant rights organization, a coalition of immigrant groups, has also added its name to this travel advisory. It's sort of like one of those State Department travel advisories, you know, when there's like revolution or uh, famine or uh, uh, riots in certain third world countries or war, State Department will issue an advisory telling American citizens not to go to that country. Uh, We see that now apparently the state of Florida, you thought it was a warm, sunny place for retirees and uh, uh, children flocking to Disney World is apparently no longer safe for them to enter. Uh, But all kidding aside, I do think this is an interesting sort of escalation in the culture war, seeing uh, um, culture war issues rising to the level uh, where you actually have people now advising citizens not to visit certain states. A few years ago, the California legislature actually passed a law prohibiting the use of state money for travel to certain states that had uh, basically red states that had passed various, you know, quote unquote, what? anti-LGBTQ laws. Right. So you, if you were a state legislator or even like a, a, some sports teams couldn't travel, what? they had to use other funds to travel to other states. You couldn't conduct state business using state funds to states that had anti-LGBTQ laws. But a couple of weeks ago, one of the legislators, I believe, who championed that law has now come out saying basically that it's no longer – uh, effective and it's it's um, become a problem and they might have to repeal it or or amend it. So I you find mean, you mean that, like it's getting in the way of actually doing government work. Yes. Oh, yes. Because, you know, if you work for the state or say you're a professor at a, at a state funded university, you might have to go present a paper at another state funded <laughs> university. So I find I find a lot of this very performative and and unhelpful. But I do think that it is. Uh, I think we'll be seeing more of it yeah. actually as part of this kind of, as we're having this conversation about a national divorce. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't foresee a, a violent civil war, 
Um, but I, but I do see more of these types of, of actions, these kind of putative measures. Um, I think we're going to see more of it. I think that's right. I think one place that probably thinks it's very unhelpful is Key West, Florida, where, where <laughs> right. I just was. And yeah, I think they'll be disappointed Or Fort, or Fort Lauderdale. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, South Beach. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not uh, sure if they consulted right? with, the, with, like the, with the hotel owners <laughs> in those places. Right. Uh, yeah. I did. I, or the LGBT chambers of commerce. Right. Or whatever. Right. Right. I recently got yeah. a very awkward sunburn in Miami. Um, so I know Florida is not safe for me, but that's just because of my poor sunscreen hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lucy, what did you bring? Well, it's interesting as we talk about the national divorce and we talked earlier, Jamie mentioned the idea of parties realigning. And something that we often talk about in the roundup and elsewhere is the idea that kind of neither party, that that the Republican Party isn't a party of policy anymore, that, you know, that they don't represent conservative policies. And we haven't really seen that codified anywhere. But I want to point people's attention to a report that the Heritage Foundation put out this week because it just, to me, was a really interesting signal. And it was a report from the Heritage Foundation, which, to be clear, Heritage is like the juggernaut think tank on the right. And it was a report about the idea that conservatives need to rethink the um, sort of worshiping at the altar of the free market. And the headline was, new report, conservatives are rethinking the relationship between free enterprise and the common good. The question isn't whether to jettison free enterprise in favor of the common good, but rather how to orient free enterprise in support of the common good. And the paper itself, which is written by uh, Alexander Salter, really isn't, it doesn't necessarily take a, 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 a strong conclusion position. Um, and I'm not quite done reading the paper. It's a long report. But it basically lays out all of the reasons that there are forces at play now that should cause conservatives to rethink whether the free enterprise you know, idea or the free market is just sort of inherently good, including the idea that in the era of globalization, maybe free enterprise doesn't work for us the way that you know, the Reagan ranch told, told us it would. So it, to me, felt a little bit vindicating personally because it felt reflective of the idea that, um, that, that there is no, there is no sort of formally fiscally conservative policy core to today's Republican party. This seems like another signal, but it is interesting to see, you know, Jamie was talking about the idea of the Republican party becoming the party of, um, the working class of a different constituency than form than previously. And this seems like a very clear Im- Im- signal that we might look back on uh, later. So that's my, that's my slightly under the radar story today. That's, that's, that's a great that's one. A good one. That's a really good one. Andy, what do you got your eye on? A story that I have been obsessed with um, for a variety of reasons that seems to be playing out in a courtroom quite soon, which is the Dominion versus Fox News trial. I would have bet decent money that Fox would have, if it had not succeeded in dismissing this suit outright, would have settled this thing, found some way to cut a deal with Dominion voting systems, which was obviously the subject of these wild-eyed theories aired on Fox and a lot of other places, and made this thing go away. But it looks like, as of today, a trial is going to happen, and if we could see Fox News hosts take the stand, Rupert Murdoch take the stand, CEO Suzanne Scott, the uh, you know, successor to Roger Ailes, take the stand, um, which is was unfathomable. I feel like a year or two ago, and at a time when you know Fox kind of felt untouchable, and, and in some ways, you know, connected. Um, to the Trump White House in a way few other media outlets would. I, I, you know, I also think that there are real First Amendment considerations here. There are, there's real, there are real legal considerations here that as a journalist who depends on, uh, you know, New York Times v. Sullivan, who depends on the, you know, quite robust protections that we have for speech in this country as compared to other countries. Um, 
you know, I, I would be lying if I wasn't say that I felt a little nervous um, seeing how this trial plays out and seeing, you know, what what the verdict ultimately is. Again, if it actually goes that far, um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot going on, and I, and I and I think it's more complicated than you know the two sort of entrenched camps want to admit the the sort of anti Fox, pro Fox liberal, conservative, whatever you want to put it, you know, I think there, there could be consequences of this case that those two sides are not uh, fully re- realizing or, or owning up to at this point. That's a very good look ahead. I had missed the news today. So thank you for bringing it to our attention. That's going to be a big one to watch. Uh, all right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about Tim Scott's exploratory committee, whew, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Andy? Uh, on Twitter for now, uh, at Andy Kroll, but ProPublica.org, I would recommend heartily. Still on Twitter. Lucy, where are you? I'm still on Twitter. I'm still verified, just but not paying for it, at Lucy M. Caldwell. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle of Elon Musk's sit-down interview with, uh, with James, uh, whatever his name is, from the BBC. Um, it's, kind of fun to watch i'll be honest it's fun uh jamie where are you i'm on twitter at jay kerchick okay beautiful and i'm on twitter still at ron stessel i don't tweet very much but you can dm me okay talk to you next week thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening if you haven't yet we'd appreciate it if you could open up the apple podcast app and give us a five-star rating and review over there This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.